Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about cancer care in the community with Dr. Anamika Katoch. Dr. Katoch is Assistant Professor of Clinical Medicine and Medical Oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a Professor of Surgical Oncology. So, Dr. Katoch, maybe you could start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do. So I'm a hematologist oncologist and I work out of uh, Waterbury Smilo. Uh, it's a small community setting. We work out of a regional cancer center uh, called the Harold Lever Cancer Center. So I'm a general community oncologist and I see all kinds of cancer. The more common cancers, of course, are more common. So I tend to see those more than the others, but breast, lung, colon, lymphoma. Um, so, uh, and also some hematology patients. And so, you know, how common is cancer in the community? I mean, when we think about um, cancers, you know, very often we think about uh, people going to large centers, uh, New York, Boston, Houston, um, New Haven. Um, but you're, you're in a small community center. So how often does cancer present in those community centers? So uh, it is surprising to see that cancer is very prevalent. And especially in the Waterbury area, I would say maybe because it has been an industrial town, and uh, we do tend to see a lot of breast cancer, a lot of uh, bladder cancer in this area as well. Um, and, uh, you know, yes, the bigger centers, we actually have the good fortune of having many good uh, bigger centers around us. You know, there's Memorial Sloan Caring, there's Dana-Farber, and certainly these uh, are very useful and helpful for us when we have particularly tough situations where uh, we need to get another opinion or some help. But I would say in the general community, cancer is fairly prevalent. And so many people, you know, because cancer really doesn't discriminate based on where you live uh, in, in the main. Um, and many people may wonder, you know, are there advantages and disadvantages to being treated closer to home um, versus going into a larger center? What would you say to people who are contemplating those decisions? That's a really good question, Anise. So, uh, you know, it is important, uh, especially for certain rarer cancers, uh, to be seen at bigger centers that tend to see a lot more of those cancers, sarcomas being one, you know, they require a real multidisciplinary approach. You have to have surgeons who've done enough of those surgeries, a trained radiation oncology team, you know, a trained chemotherapy uh, professionals who've dealt enough of, with that cancer. Uh, it is always patient's preference to be treated close to home. You know, nobody wants to drive two hours to get treatment uh, because, you know, chemotherapy treatment is not just about chemotherapy. It's also about supportive care that goes with it. So we don't just see patients on day one and say, okay, now we'll see you in three weeks. Uh, it doesn't work like that. 
Uh, so we see patients on day one. You know, we are always available by phone. We are seeing them sometimes the very next day, sometimes within a week. Sometimes they need transfusion support. So it is a it is a complicated and complex uh, process. So patients' preference is always to be treated near home, and I would say that we have very robust. Um, uh, multidisciplinary teams for almost all cancers. And we also recognize that some cancers do better when they are referred out to tertiary centers. Uh, one major example being acute leukemia. You know, it is, uh, it is, it is a cancer that requires a lot of resources, uh, a lot of support, a lot of experience. Uh, and, uh, you know, people who have acute leukemias tend to do better when they're treated at tertiary care centers. So, it's just also recognizing where, what are your limitations and what are the patients that you can best serve and which patients will do better if they're referred out. And so so I guess the 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 take-home message there is that if if a patient has a cancer, um, that they can be seen at a cancer center in their community and that that community center will have no hesitation about referring them out to a larger center if that's in the patient's best interest. I would say that is absolutely correct. And a lot of times it is driven by physicians. Uh, sometimes it's driven by patients. But I have to say that patients, you know, often feel uncomfortable telling their physicians that, oh, listen, I want to get a second opinion. And, you know, a part of it will also depend upon your approach to the patient. And we are sort of very open about it. You know, we we understand that this is cancer. It can be a life-changing diagnosis. So we, we will often say to our patients, you know, if you would like another opinion, you know, please let me know and I will help you get one. Uh, so sometimes people do elect to get another opinion. And Lots of times people say, no, what you're saying makes sense if they've already developed sort of a sense of trust and confidence in you, um, you know, they will stay with you and uh, be treated close to where they live. And so are there particular cancers that are particularly amenable to being treated closer to home? Um, so you mentioned that the rare cancers uh, might be ones where you want to seek a second opinion. But um, are there are there certain cancers that you think, you know, if you have, for example, breast cancer or colon cancer, that that those really can be treated um, closer to where you live, that you don't necessarily uh, need to go to a larger center. I think that is absolutely true. Uh, you know, it of course depends upon the strength of your surgical staff and your surgical support because a lot of these cancers do need surgery. So if you have a trained oncological surgeon on staff uh, who who is equipped to do these surgeries, uh, then I think, uh, you know, these cancers can be very well handled um, in the community. And so what questions should patients be asking of their uh, of their team of doctors? If they're seen by a community cancer program, what questions should they be asking in order to make the best informed decision as to where they should be treated? That's a good question, but can be a little bit tricky. You know, I don't know if patients would entirely feel comfortable sometimes asking their physicians, you know, what their experience is in treating this cancer. And I do get that question, but very occasionally. Um, but I think it is important for patients to get involved in their care and ask these questions. And I think a lot of the 
Sometimes people don't ask this question because they feel that they're going to offend the physician, uh, which which sometimes may be true, but most times is not. Um, so uh, yeah, I think it's fair enough to say that, you know, doctor, do you treat a lot of these cancers? And, you know, sort of a ubiquitous question, what do people in my situation face? How do they generally do? Do you think I need a second opinion? Uh, so I think these are all fair questions to ask and say, you know, do you work with the surgeon closely? Do you know if he's done many surgeries? Is it possible for me to speak to someone who has, uh, you know, gone through this process? Uh, so just basic questions that might help keep patients well informed. Right. And I, I think that that's so important that that patients really do advocate for themselves. And and truthfully, many um, community programs actually do have the infrastructure to be able to provide good quality care for um, for the more common cancers. So you mentioned, for example, uh, that you have a multidisciplinary team. Tell us more about how that works in the community setting. Sure. And I would say that our, uh, our care, you know, even if I say so myself, I think it is excellent. We bring most of our cases to a multidisciplinary tumor conference. So if I were to pick... Uh, let's say the most common cancer that we see in women, which is breast cancer. Um, so once a woman gets a mammogram, gets a biopsy or sees a surgeon, she is presented at a multidisciplinary tumor conference. You know, for people who don't know what that is, it is basically a collection of uh, many oncologists or any oncologists in the community, radiation oncology, uh, radiology, the breast surgeons themselves, um, social worker, uh, nutritionists. So we all get together as a team and uh, discuss the presentation of each um, sort of uh, person's cancer. Uh, and then we decide, uh, you know, sort of what would the best approach to dealing with that situation be? Most of the time it's standard, but things are changing. You know, we... We were used to using, for example, chemotherapy in always the post-surgical setting. But now we are moving to using treatment sometimes upfront before surgery. So not everybody is a good candidate for that. Um, so, you know, we talk about uh, uh, things like that. Uh, other things that come up are genetics. Uh, this has also become a very impo important part of uh, management for patients. You know, 10% of the cancers that are diagnosed, especially breast cancer I'm talking about, can be genetic. Uh, so we always uh, talk about that. We have a genetic counselor also as a part of the team who will be there and say, okay, you know, I think this person needs to meet with me. We need to, you know, check her or her family members. If there are other... Um, you could say financial issues, social issues. We have a social worker who is present who can help you guide, uh, help to guide patients through that process. We have licensed nutritionist who can uh, provide support as to healthy diets, uh, because this really becomes a very important part of what people feel that they have some control over and, uh, you know, it empowers them. And of course, we know that obesity and cancer have a direct link. So, you know, we always want to talk about maintaining a healthy lifestyle and a healthy body mass index. Um, 
And once, you know, a case is discussed at the uh, multidisciplinary conference, we will then make recommendations. The patient gets established with a medical oncologist, a radiation oncologist, and it's really a very a good collaborative approach. And the other, the other thing that we often talk about on the show is um, things like personalized medicine and genomics. Um, so are those things available in community settings or are those really only the purview of the larger academic centers? There has been so much uh, progress in these that I, you know, the, these things are now easily available to us as well. Um, so, uh, you know, our goal is always to be able to at least offer standard a standard of care, which means, you know, if you were to see an oncologist here or you went to the West Coast and you saw an oncologist there, uh, you know, the therapy recommended would be would be would be similar, you know, if not identical. Um, so, you know, that is called standardized care. And it is based uh, now on genomics, which do play a huge role in determining uh, treatment for cancer. It has been significant. It is a significant advance, the treatment of breast cancer. You know, when we look back, we find that we were probably over-treating a lot of the breast cancer patients with chemotherapy. Now we have tests that can actually determine benefit from chemotherapy. And uh, these are based on genomic tests. Uh, a lot, for a lot of the cancers, including lung cancer, colon cancer, we are doing molecular testing. We are identifying targets uh, on these cells, which we know drive the growth of cancer cells. And then we can actually pick medications that uh, would specifically block these drivers. And uh, that, you know, is sort of the tailor-made approach uh, for um, treating cancer. So it sounds like, you know, patients can get that same kind of genomic uh, testing and that personalized therapies, uh, even staying closer to home. We're going to take a short break for a medical minute um, and come back and talk more about uh, cancer care in the community with my guest, Dr. Katoch. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about colorectal cancer. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable. And as a result, it's recommended that men and women over the age of 50 have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve management of colorectal cancer by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in more patient-specific treatments. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. We're discussing the care of cancer patients in the community. And Anamika, right before the break, um, we were talking about some of the, the differences. And the other thing that I was wondering about was um, 
clinical trials. You know, so often on this show, we talk about the importance of clinical trials and how that's one of the ways to get tomorrow's therapies today and that patients um, often will get the best care by participating in clinical trials for which they are eligible and for which their doctor thinks uh, they would benefit from. Um, Talk to us about whether clinical trials are available in the community setting. Anish, you bring up a great point. And uh, it is true that, you know, we wouldn't be where we are today in cancer if we didn't encourage our patients to participate in clinical trials. Uh, You know, as everyone knows, 2020 has been a particularly challenging year. And also for clinical trials, it's been a very challenging year uh, simply because, you know, clinical trials require very diligent follow-up, mostly for patient safety. And that we all know because of COVID, you know, we've had to resort to virtual appointments um, and uh, seeing patients maybe a less a little bit less frequently than we normally would. So a lot of the clinical trials had to be put on hold. Uh, But usually we have a very robust um, uh, collection of clinical trials uh, for patients with uh, breast cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer, chronic leukemias, and myelomas. And so that brings up a great point, the fact that you're part of a network um, and can avail yourself of of clinical trials that are available at larger centers, maybe not all of the trials, but certainly have a collaboration whereby patients um, can avail themselves of clinical trials, oftentimes closer to home. And if not, um, you you can always send them to, to a larger center where they can participate. And that brings up my next question, which is in those cases where, you know, there is a a particular nuance of the care or where a second opinion might be needed, is it possible for patients to seek a second opinion somewhere and to still get treated closer to home? So, for example, getting, you know, the advice of an oncologist uh, closer to home about what particular regimen to use or or how a radiation plan might be uh, structured, but then still get their care closer to home? Oh, absolutely, Anise. And this happens more frequently than one would think. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes I'll say to my patients when I'm torn between two options, and I'll say, I would like you to see, you know, so-and-so maybe at the Dana-Farber Institute, maybe at uh, closer to home at uh, Smilo. And then I always give them the option that, you know, if this is really sort of advice and whatever they recommend, uh, if it's not on a clinical trial and we are able to do it here, uh, you are welcome to come here and we would love to treat you here if that is your preference. So this is, you know, a very sort of open discussion with patients. And sometimes patients will finish their clinical trial and then will continue to follow with you as their primary oncologist. So, you know, ultimately it's about the patient, what is best for the patient. And I make sure that, you know, our patients know that and they're not feeling pressured. They're not feeling uh, that they're offending us um, in any way. 
Yeah, so important to really, for patients and everybody listening to really understand that, you know, this is a a collaboration and it's a collaboration amongst physicians who are all trying to treat you uh, in the best possible way. And so you're not going to offend anybody. And and for for the most part, many of us actually do seek the opinions of, of our colleagues at multidisciplinary tumor conferences, like you mentioned, um, as well as outside the institution. And, and frequently you can get uh, the same care uh, then closer to home if somebody has a better idea of how to treat something um, that uh, that whereby those services are available in the community, you, you can still do so. Talk to me a little bit, um, Anamika, about um, kind of community support. You know, you mentioned one of the disadvantages sometimes of going into a larger center is that, you know, frequently if, if care is required, say, for example, with radiation therapy five days a week for many weeks, um, that a two-hour drive might not be uh, really the most feasible thing. One would also imagine that, you know, just being in, in the community where you're at, being around loved ones and so on, can sometimes be a little bit more comfortable for patients. Do you find that that's the case? Oh, I would say in cancer care, that is of utmost importance. You know, this is one uh, diagnosis where just having the support of the people you love is so meaningful because it's not just a physical uh, diagnosis. It's an emotional, it's a psychological diagnosis. It affects all the people around you. Uh, so it's really important to have that social support, not only from, you know, your family, but also from where you're being treated. So, you know, where we are, for example, at the Lever Cancer Center, we have a radiation oncology division, which is in the same building. So people who need radiation can come right there uh, if we are doing something which is a combination chemotherapy and radiation. You know, we will we will try to um, make sure that their appointments uh, can be coordinated. That life really can be as simple uh, as possible for them. Sometimes people don't have transport, so we have a social worker on site who will arrange for transport for people, and we, you know, we will tell our patients, our elderly patients, who often rely on their children, but, you know, but their children work. So it's not always possible for somebody to give you a ride each and every day back and forth. Uh, So we have that kind of support and we want our patients to know about it. We want them to use it. Uh, We also have uh, support groups. We have a very robust and active breast cancer support group, uh, other support groups, uh, which are not as robust, but are present. Uh, They meet once a month. I think now with COVID, some of them have been meeting remotely, but that women also find a very strong sense of community and support with those uh, centers. And I would think that the the other place where, you know, really optimizing and, and, and kind of using that social support is at end of life and, and in terms of palliative care. So are palliative care resources available in the community, uh, both um, on an inpatient as well as, um, is there such a thing as home palliative care where people can really, you know, take community all the way back to your own home and and um, have the, the services um, that keep you comfortable at the end of life at home? 
Uh, Anish, you bring up an excellent, excellent question. So uh, palliative care is a very important part of cancer care. And, uh, you know, it includes pain control. It includes things that can occur like loss of appetite, a loss of interest in life. Um, so uh, we actually offer uh, a, a consultative service that is available through Yale. We can do it either virtually or we can do it in the office, we actually have palliative care services available on site. So that is outpatient. Uh, as an inpatient, there are palliative care services available through both hospitals. So both Waterbury Hospital and St. Mary's Hospital offer palliative uh, care services. There's an inpatient unit for uh, hospice care, but a lot of patients want to be home. They want to you know, be surrounded with their loved ones. They want to be in familiar surroundings. So we have several uh, hospice agencies, so to speak, who can make that possible and who do really do a very, uh, v- who do a fabulous job of uh, taking care of patients at the end of life. They're trained to do that. They are compassionate, they're empathetic, and uh, most patients are very pleased uh, with their services. So, so, you know, it's really important for cancer patients to get treated where they feel the most comfortable and, and being surrounded by loved ones, particularly at the end of life, um, is something that, uh, that they may consider. You know, the other thing, uh, Anamika, that you've mentioned a few times is this whole crisis that we've been through with COVID, um, which in and of itself uh, has restricted um, mobility in terms of going across state lines uh, for certain states, um, travel, uh, and so on. Talk to us a little bit about how the COVID epidemic affected uh, cancer care in the community. Well, uh, you know, a lot of the screening procedures that uh people would go for. I think those have been the first ones to sort of have gone away or have been put on hold. So screening mammograms, screening colonoscopies, those have been a challenge. So people have either put them off or have just been afraid to go out. And, uh, you know, we've resorted to some virtual visits, which I would say patients are thankful that they're seeing a doctor, even if they're not coming into the office and patients who have been able to come to the office are just so delighted to be there. And they've often said to me, oh, doctor, this is my first outing in the last three months. I cannot tell you how happy I am to be here. So it's sort of kind of funny to hear that. Um, uh, but I, I feel that, you know, a lot of people have delayed their care uh, and uh, we are beginning to see a little bit of an uptick uh, now in patients presenting with slightly advanced cancers at this time. Because of, of the lack of screening, you think? Lack of screening and self-delayed uh, patient care, you know, obviously for, for reasons that are understandable. And so are you recommending that people get back into screening now? Do you think that we have gotten over the the height of the pandemic such that um, people should really get back into doing those screening mammograms and colonoscopies? Uh, I think in the community, people are already back to it. 
you know, our centers, they are, uh, you know, asking people, uh, everybody to mask temperature checks. Most people now have uh, been immunized. I would say at least 90% of my patient population who I ask uh, has either received the vaccine or is going to receive it in the next few days. Uh, so I do get a sense that uh, at least as far as medical care is concerned, that the community is getting back to normal. And do you think that some of the things that we've kind of learned uh, about medicine and how medicine can be delivered? So, for example, you know, virtual visits and and telemedicine really opened up, I find, a whole horizon for people for whom transportation was a big issue. Do you think that that's here to stay, that uh, we'll continue to have telemedicine visits into the future? Excellent question, Anise. I think that it is here to stay. And uh, it has made a life simpler uh, for a lot of people, but it has also brought along many challenges. You know, the older patients who cannot get the video connection, they are so frustrated by the end of the visit. Um, but I, I would say the telephone visits go much smoother, especially if you're dealing with uh, an older population or you know people who are just not comfortable doing it on the phone. Um, so I, I would say that other than the technology challenge, uh, I think it is here to stay. Dr. Anonima Katoch is Assistant Professor of Clinical Medicine and Medical Oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.